0: How are you all doing? You right. As warm as the weather, great, that's cool. But good to be here this morning and to open up the book of Ruth. Really good to welcome Don and Kirsten. It's been great having them on the team this week. Don is a Big expert on phone apps. So if you've got any questions around phone apps, go and chat to him. The more the merrier. He just loves technology and all that kind of stuff. But it really has been brilliant, and we're looking forward to next Saturday outdoing the coronation. That's the plan for next Saturday to be a bigger event. But it really is great, and we're looking at the book of Ruth this morning, as I said, and we're in a new series. I preached at the 9:15. I'm preaching now. I'm not actually preaching tonight because I'm going to a Simon and Garfunkel tribute concert. Any Simon and Garfunkel fans? Just when you thought I couldn't get any cooler, I am. That's me. So, yeah, most of you have written me off now. What's this guy got to say if he likes to sound like a fun call? But we're looking at the book of Ruth because we think that it could help us in terms of friendship, in terms of community, in terms of belonging, welcoming the refugee, loving others, caring for others. How do we invest in women in leadership? We think there will be some key themes throughout this text that will be really useful for us as individuals and as a church family. And I guess it's worth saying that... Our hope, of course, is to teach him some stuff that we think will be helpful and specifically useful for us where we are in this time in history. But we would encourage you to be open to what God does want to say to you, and we want to be open to his words speaking to us afresh every Sunday. And we'd encourage you in your own time to also look at this book and to ask, what is God saying to you? What is God saying to us? What is God saying to your community? How can this enrich your life and our church? I have to say, as I was... Praying this week about what to share and how to, I guess, present this, I've been a bit kind of unclear about what God wanted to say, but as I was praying, God just reminded me that it's up to him to speak and not me, and of course I want to be a vessel, but ultimately we want to be receiving from him, and that's my prayer, that's my hope, that we would receive what he wants to say to us as individuals, as communities and as a church family. So we're going to open up roof one from verse one to seven, it's about a quarter of your way through your physical Bible, if that's what you've got, but it'll be on the screen behind me. Ruth 1, verses 1 to 7. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live there for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Killon. They were Epaphraphites. I'm not quite sure you say that, but neither do you, so it doesn't really matter. From Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and they were left with two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food to them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on a road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So what I want to share this morning is that I probably need some new glasses. That's what I've learned from that short passage. <laughs> I need a new, subscri- a new prescription. Anyway, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to be open to what God wants to say to us. So let's perhaps even put out our hands as a sign of being ready to receive. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of this book. We thank you for your life, your death, and your resurrection. We thank you that you're alive and real to us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you minister amongst us? Would you speak through the power of your word? Where we need to be encouraged and affirmed and strengthened by your love, would we receive that this morning? But equally, you want to sharpen us and challenge us and provoke us. I pray we'll be open to that too. Holy Spirit, would you come, we ask. Amen. So this is the first act of four in Ruth. Roof. So Ruth's book has four chapters, which also are also the four acts. And this is like a teaser meant to, meant to kind of entice us to know more, meant in, wanting to help us get gripped to what's going to happen, helping us to understand a bit of the key themes and headlines. And the desire is that we're kind of just desperate to know more, to desperate to read on. It's a drama and it unfolds. And the purpose of these opening few lines is that it sets the scene, it gives some headlines, it underpins some of the key themes and topics, but it also helps us look at the kind of stuff that's coming up and say actually I want to know more, I want to unpack this further. And as we read this it's written in a kind of Jewish style which is called Midrashic and the purpose as it was known was to read this and to read it in a way that's open to imagination, open to interpretation and also open to application. It's meant to be read in community. It's meant to be read in a way that's open to God speaking afresh. And that's what we want to do, to recognize it's alive and living amongst us. And I'd encourage in your communities to read this over the next few weeks. Of course, we want to look at it on Sundays. But we also want to spend time in our own time and in our communities wrestling with this and asking what does God want to say to us? What does he want to speak to us at this time in history? And in this context of the opening verses, we see from the outset in verse 1 that it's set in the time of the judges. And from some archaeological research that I've done myself, we know that that's 1200 to 1020 BC. And this time in the rule of the judges was violent. It was bloodthirsty. It was lawless. It was godless. There was poor leadership, a forgotten God. It was a real mess. It was absolute chaos. It was carnage. It was violent. It was oppressive. My son Jensen, who was here a few moments ago, he's nine, and he's been recently reading his Action Bible two pages a day, and when he gets to Judges, he showed me last year, he's like, I flipping love this dad. All that violence, all that action, all that death, that's not really what we want to focus on, but it's pretty bleak, it's pretty hopeless, it's desperate, it's without leadership, it's a really bleak time in the history of God's people. And we see that alongside this, alongside this story which would make Game of Thrones look tame, we see there's also a famine from verse 1. And ironically, Bethlehem was known as a place of the house of bread. So to go through a famine was a deep problem to be held. And we see throughout Scripture that Abraham, Moses, Joseph all had famines as part of their story to see God's provision, to see God's timing, to see God at the heart of their communities and at the heart of their journey. But famines also, as we know from Deuteronomy, can also be an indicative sign in the Old Testament of God's judgment. We don't know if that's the case for this story. We don't know if it's particularly true of the story of Ruth, but it can be a sign of God's judgment. So we have the lawlessness and the brokenness of a culture in Judges. We have this context alongside a famine. And then what we see is that the family fled to Moab. And we need to understand that the people of God and the Moabites hated each other. They neighboured each other, but they were at conflict with one another. They gave each other less opportunities. They were speaking badly of each other. They bullied one another. There was a real sense of just rivalry between these two areas. They did not get on. So they moved to Moab and things didn't get much better. We see from this passage that Naomi lost her husband and then 10 years later lost her two sons. Imagine the heartache and the pain that she was experiencing. Imagine the brokenness, the bleakness that was around her. Imagine how desperate things must have felt. And understand that her son's dying wasn't just the loss, the tragic loss of her children. It was also loss of the family line, the bloodline, the inheritance, the estate, the family name. It was really bleak and desperate. That's the scene that we're looking at this morning. That is the setting. It is desperate. In this place, God does his work, we'll see. But it was bleak, it was desperate. And what I want to suggest this morning is a few kind of key themes, as I say, in this first act that are unpacked further throughout the next three chapters. Is just a few things that will help us in the next few weeks live in a different land, live in a complex world. As we think about God's people having to survive in this land, this particular family having to flourish in this brokenness and bleakness, What can God say to us this morning about how can we live in a time that can be, if we're honest, godless, if we're honest, pushing God aside in our culture? What can this mean for us? I don't want to preach doom and gloom, but I think it's obvious that we look around and there's a lot of hopelessness, a lot of people saying, actually, I don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. How do we respond? What can we learn from this book about how we posture ourselves? How do we live and act and love Jesus through the storms of life when things feel bleak and oppressed? I never forget when I was at secondary school, at Berner Grammar School in Slough. Slough is where the office is set. That is our one claim to fame. And the office is superb. So if you like Simon and Garfunkel in the office, you and I can be pals. But when we had the Gideons visit our school assembly. They came and gave the Bible. I've still got mine. It's upstairs. I can even show you after if you want. And I've highlighted it and used it many times. The Gideons gave out Bibles. I never forget looking out the coach window and seeing our playground just covered in these red Bibles. Just covered in the red Bibles. Students just chucking them everywhere and the teachers just ignoring it. And that always stuck with me. That always struck me as just a sense of where we are as a culture. I'm not trying to overplay things or dramatize things but that sense of pushing God's word aside, pushing Jesus out of society. The playground was just covered in these red Bibles, just no regard for Jesus. And if we look in our different contexts and different research, we see that church attendance is perhaps on decline in the UK and the West. We see that we're increasingly in anti-Christian culture. What does it look like? How do we posture ourselves I was chatting to a friend of a friend, my friend is a Christian, they were chatting to a non-Christian friend, and they were saying that as they were talking about Jesus, their friend, it wasn't like they were anti it, they just could not see how Jesus would have any connection with their life, they had not thought about it, not began to consider how Jesus could serve them. How do we posture ourselves in a time where, if we're honest, it can feel bleak, it can feel like a complex and different land? What can we learn from this story this morning? And I want to suggest that as Christians at large, and I don't just mean central, that we've kind of lost our way. And we need to look to the roots of Scripture, the life of Naomi particularly this morning, about how we can live in a different and complex land. And I want to suggest that we've become Aldi Christians now. I shop at Aldi, no shame in that. Okay, Some of you have completely switched off now. How, how can you shop at Aldi? Okay, I shop at Aldi. But when you go on Aldi, you know the deal, Right? You get your tin of beans and your eggs and your flour and your bottle of milk or whatever it is. Then you go to the middle aisle and it is impossible to walk past the middle aisle without getting a garden gnome, an inflatable canoe, screwdriver set and a body warmer, whatever it is. You kind of get all that stuff and you get to the till and you're at the till and you're there and the cashier is sending stuff at you so fast, unless you're like an international keeper, you've got no chance, you're trying to sort of catch it coming at you, it's really fast and you sort of all come in and all this stuff is damaged in your bag and the boiler suit is on the cream and the other thing has crashed the eggs and it's all absolute chaos, it's all frantic and it's all too busy. And I kind of worry that we've become like that, that in our society trying to respond to what Jesus wants to say to us, things coming at us thick and fast, we're confused, we're frantic, we're almost cheapening what we do. No disrespect to Aldi, we shop there. But how are we responding at this time? How are we taking a step back and saying, we want to posture ourselves like this. We want to serve Jesus at this time and trusting that he's always bigger, always more able than anything we would face. So I want to suggest three keys this morning, three things that we see in this passage and we see them throughout the book of Ruth that will help us as we live and respond to the concerns and challenges of our time. First, I want to suggest we need to look up, not down. We need to look towards Jesus and not to the problems surrounding us. In verse 1, it says a certain man called Elimelech. Now, we need to understand that this is in the setting of the macro context, the meta narrative of Scripture. It's so journey of Scripture. You have the creation. You have God's people in, in, enslaved and escaping slavery. You have the God- being given the law to the people through Moses we have the judges and the kings and all this stuff but in this particular story we zoom in to a particular family to a certain man to a certain family right from the outset the writer of Ruth is determined to help us understand that God works through people through individuals God's redemptive purposes so often come through people in this situation a very ordinary family He chooses to work for you and I. He chooses to minister in and through his people. God of the universe wants to work for you and I. I was reading this week Andrew Murray's book called Abide in Me. It's a brilliant book, quite a challenging book, but a brilliant book. And in this book, he talks about the fact that when we talk about God abiding in the the vine, and we're abiding in the vine, he says that we so often talk about the fact that we're connected to a vine and we connect to the vine in order to do ministry, in order to serve him. We need to stay rooted in the vine. But he also says, this, flip it on his head and understand that God chooses for whatever reason to work through the vine, to work through his people, to work through you and I. We're part of the story. We're part of the journey. He chooses to work through families, through individuals, through these very ordinary people. And the name for Amalek it also means God is king. So, at the outset of this passage, we realize that not only does God work through all of us, he works through individuals, through families, through people, he's also king, he's also sovereign, he's also God of the universe. God isn't actually mentioned too much throughout the book of Ruth, but his character, his providence, his sovereignty is so evident throughout this book. So, we see these two truths through this scripture. But God is king, God is able, God is in charge, yet he also works through us. We look up to him and not down to the problems around us. We trust that he's able to work in and through his people. As a senior team, we went up Blackford Hill this week and we're praying for our church. And Don just shared, he felt actually significant for this morning, was Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We look up to God for his perspective, for his insight, for his direction, for his vision, his purposes, not what's going on around us. It might look bleak. Our personal lives might look bleak. Our situations at our workplace might look bleak. But somehow we get above it and look to him and have faith in him. Faith in essence means through the pains and struggles and brokenness, we keep going, we keep trusting. That's what faith means, to keep Putting our faith and trust in Him, regardless of how broken and desperate things feel. And we also see in this story that faith leads to faithfulness our faithfulness to keep putting one step in front of another, to keep going in spite of the problems around us. We see this in Naomi through the storms of life, through real hardship kept going, resolve and perseverance. We see that throughout this book, God's people putting one foot in front of the other, keep going amidst the storms, amidst the challenges. Our challenge at this time perhaps is to stand still and to trust God, to be faithful regardless of our feelings are and what's in front of us. One of the challenges for the church at this time is that we're so used to having five, ten-year strategies, but all the experts will tell you that actually... Most businesses aren't doing that anymore because it's just so difficult to plan. But what we're called to do, is not sexy, it's not attractive, it's to be faithful, to trust in him, to be steadfast, to be resilient, to keep trusting in him, to change things, to do his work through his people, but to resist and stand firm in the good news of Jesus, to resist and stand firm in the faithfulness and hope we see in Jesus. There's a Chinese proverb that says a man standing in the river is still doing something not moving forward, but resisting. We're called to do something by resisting, standing still, being increasingly pressing into Jesus, trusting him, being faithful to him. We look up and aren't shaped by the world around us. We don't give in to the temptations and challenges around us. We continue to stand firm in him. We continue to look up to Jesus and base our values and worldviews on what we see in him, not what we see around us. We serve a different kingdom and follow a different king. We look up to him and our paths are guided by him and his ways and his purposes and his plans. When things look bleak around us, there's always hope and strength as we look to him. No matter how bleak and desperate and barren your situation is this morning, there's always hope and strength to be drawn from from him. We look up and not down. The second thing I want to suggest we see and is important for us at this time is we look out and not in. Such a key theme in this book is how we love and serve others of different ethnicities, of different backgrounds, of different religions, of different contexts. We see in verse 4 that the sons married Moabites and understand that this would have been frowned upon because the two cultures hated each other, as I said. They might have been ostracized, they might have been given less opportunity in the workplace, they might have had a struggle for opportunity. And then we see Naomi stood with her family, stood with her daughter-in-laws despite them being Moabites. We see an obvious sense of a family from different backgrounds and different contexts coming together, showing kindness and love towards one another. In this book of Ruth, we see a word hesed that means kindness of God. And this is key throughout the book because it talks about the fact we're called to be kind to one another, we understand that, we're called to love each other, we're called to care for one another absolutely. But this word means more often than not, you're called to love people from beyond your bloodline, beyond your context, beyond your community. How are we loving and journeying with people who are different to us? How are we sharing our lives with those from different cultures, different contexts, different backgrounds? Years ago, I went to South Africa and we took a group of young people, Adele and I, and I was actually foreman of this building a house, which is laughable because I can barely bleed a radiator. But we were there in South Africa and before we went we were asked to read a book by Desmond Tutu called There's No Truth Without Forgiveness. And this is a story about how in South Africa there was, as many of you all know, just years of hatred and violence and oppression between the different races and the different colours of skin. And because one people group were violent towards the other or stole cars or burnt cars or killed family members or whatever just did hideous stuff towards one another. The other group felt, well, because of what you've done to my parents, because of what you've done to my family, I'm going to return that back. I'm going to go further and beyond. You deserve that. And constantly just led to one colour and race fighting against the other colour and race, and it just got horrible and messy, as many of you will know. But what he says is that the first act has to be about forgiveness. The first act has to be about understanding each other's story, listening to one another, learning their journey. Before we can move forward, he says, they have to understand their story. There has to be forgiveness. There has to be breakthrough. If we keep fighting back, if we keep retaliating, it'll only get worse. How are we posturing ourselves so we can learn from others, so we can experience the life and context of different people? And understand that even though this is bleak for Naomi, she doesn't get off the hook. Her life is in absolute turmoil. But there's still an expectation to love others beyond her own skin color and people group. And we want to commend the work of sanctuary that Tricia and others do this morning who are brilliant, just welcoming the refugees. We have a responsibility to love others. In your community, in your life, are you hanging out with people who are just like you? Am I spending time with people who are just like me, who think similarly, who look similarly, who act similarly to me? If so, I need to think about how I can learn from others, how I can bridge the gap into other cultures. How can I look out towards others? How can I really love my neighbor? How can I really love my neighbor of different religions, of different contexts, of different backgrounds, of different stories, of different experiences? What a witness that is to a world. We do that brilliantly, but let's continue to invest in that. Let's continue to consider personally and as a church, how do we love people who are different to us? How do we show the church in all its beauty and glory through the different experiences and contexts of all the individuals in the church? And this story is in a real contrast to Judges. Where there's narcissistic leadership, where there's selfish leadership, there's a selfless leadership, there's a selfless loving one another, putting others first. This is the church, isn't it? This is the church in all its beauty where we don't always get on, we look differently, we act differently differently. Why else would we be here Sunday morning? Look around. Why else would we be hanging out this morning? But that's the beauty of the church, to understand each other, to forgive one another, to value different experiences and expertises in this room. Recently, I think there's been a rise in investing in our personal families and the nuclear families. I don't want to suggest that's wrong, but I do worry that that's been at the cost of investing those who are different to us, to so those who are outside the extended family. What we see in scripture, even the life of Jesus, is the extended family, those who are all sorts of walks of life, different cultures coming together and being family together, a renewed family. How do we look out and not into our own needs? How do we constantly look out to love others and serve others regardless of our own brokenness and bleakness? Perhaps this morning you're looking for other people to love you, but perhaps God's calling you to love others and to be restored in and through that purpose. How do we look out and not in? And finally, I want to suggest we need to look forward and not backwards. As I said, things had been bleak. But we see in verse 7, amidst all the pain and heartache and anguish, a glimmer of hope. This famine might just be coming to an end. It looks like God is going to come through. It looks like he does care. It looks like he's going to provide. There is a hopeful future, and it's deliberately leaving us on a cliffhanger, but it looks like things are turning a corner. There's whispers of his provision and goodness. There's whispers that he might just be on the throne. There's witness, there's whispers of things just turning a corner and saying that things will not necessarily look bleak, but we hope and expectancy from God coming through. And that's how so often we have to sit with the faith and expectancy of what God wants to do for his people, but also things around us looking often bleak and difficult. Naomi heads back to homeland. What faith in God? Was God going to allow her to go for another unsettled season? Was this going to be more pain and struggle? Was this going to be more hardship and upheaval? Is God going to turn up for her? Is this going to be another season of difficulty and trauma? But this is so often our story. When things look bleak and dangerous and difficult around us, we have hope in Jesus to turn to him. When things look bleak and desperate, we have hope in him. In this passage we see that the barrenness of the family, the the term in verse 4 is dwelled there for 10 years and that would refer to the fact that 10 years was understood to be the time when beyond that you couldn't have children according to this kind of understanding of the Jewish culture. But what we also see in this passage is at the start in verse 1 and 2 refers to Bethlehem and you know and I know that Bethlehem is where King David is from, you and I know that Bethlehem is where Jesus is born. At the start, what it starts in Bethlehem finishes in the stable. At the end of this story, we'll see in future weeks that the Messiah comes from this family line. What hope that brings, it starts with the end in mind. What seemingly was barren, what seemingly was desperate, what seemingly was broken and bleak, suddenly we see later on that the child of the Messiah is born. The family line was restored, the dignity was brought, the purpose was rooted in him. The good leadership that had been so lacking was now evidenced through Jesus. Through this barrenness and brokenness, there was beauty and blessing. So often God uses the pain and struggle we're going through. Yes, it's difficult, but actually he restores it and goes further. He restores it and does incredible things in and through that pain and barrenness. We are the people of hope. Sometimes we need to remind one another that we are the people of the ultimate hope. However bleak and difficult things are, there's always hope in Jesus. There's always hope because Jesus does come. We know the end of the story. We know that from Bethlehem the Messiah came, who offered us life, death, and resurrection, eternal hope in him. From barrenness and brokenness became beauty and blessing. Always look forward with hope. Always look forward with joy and purpose because of what he's done on the cross. So how do we live in a complex world, in a different land? How do we look around and think actually there's a lot of pain and struggle and the church is just unable to meet the needs around us? We remember that God is God. He's on the throne. We keep looking out towards others. We keep loving others on the fringes of society. We keep loving our neighbor. We keep looking up to him for his perspective, his direction, his vision, his purposes, and we keep looking forward for eternal hope in Jesus. Let's be known as a church who follow Jesus passionately, who worship him dearly. Let's be known as a church who are a family of communities, but not just people who are like us, but people who welcome those beyond our particular people group. Let's love this city one person at a time. Let's care for those who world is often forgotten let me pray for us Father I'm aware that there was a lot in that this morning a lot of different thoughts but we just want to receive what you might want to say to us this morning what is it that you are encouraging us to step into how are you sharpening us how are you shaping us but, Holy Spirit, we pray that we would be a church, individuals who look to you for your perspective, for your vision, for your priorities. We'd look up and not down, but we'd look out and not in. We thank you for all the fantastic ways so many people here this morning look out to others, but we pray that that would increase. We pray that we'd be known across this city as the church who really loves, alongside many other churches. And we pray that we'd look forward to the eternal hope in you. For those of us perhaps this morning who things just feel bleak and desperate, would they have a new revelation of the goodness and hope that we have in you? For people this morning who are just at their wits' end, would they have a refreshed vision of who you are and a hope in you? Would they be restored and strengthened by that this morning? Even though things before them might look difficult and painful, I pray that there be a renewed hope and strength because we look forward and not to what's around us. Holy Spirit, come and minister, we ask. Amen.